0: Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy.
1: I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on, let's go. Yes, you. Come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy. Nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back healthy people to On Call with Dr. Randy. We are back for season two. Who's glad we're back? I'm glad we're back. So I know you're glad we're back. Come on, let's do a little happy shimmy because we're back for season two. Hey, hey, shimmy with me now. Okay, your shimmy needs a little work. Needs a little bit of work. But Welcome back to season two of On Call with Dr. Randy. Thank you for joining me. For another episode, and to all my first-time listeners, I am Dr. Randy, so welcome to my podcast. Let's get this going. On today's episode, I have Dr. Taniqua Miller. Dr. Miller is an assistant professor in the Department of Gynecology and Obstetrics at Emory University School of Medicine. She received her undergraduate degree in psychology at Yale University and her medical degree at Harvard Medical School. After completing medical school, she went on to complete her residency training in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Virginia. She is recognized as a National Certified Menopause Practitioner for the North American Menopause Society and currently serves as the chair of Emory's Gynecological and Obstetrics Department of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Man, that's a mouthful. I before C except after OB. Yeah. You'll get that joke on your way home. But yeah, that's a mouthful. But she's very qualified, as you can tell. I wanted to bring Dr. Miller on to discuss menopause. When does it usually start? What are the typical symptoms? What are some of the best treatment options, including hormone pills, depression medications, and tapping? What is tapping? Well, tapping is, and I'm not about to tell you what tapping is. I'm going to let Dr. Miller tell you what tapping is. So you got to listen to the rest of the podcast to hear what tapping is. So let's go on call with Dr. Miller. I have New York's own Dr. Miller. What's good, Dr. Miller?
0: Hey, Dr. Randy. Thank you for having me this evening.
1: I'm glad you're on. What borough are you representing from New York?
0: I'm from the Bronx. Marble Hill. Marble Hill. Bronx.
1: Okay. Okay. (laughs) That's even more specific. What makes that area so specific?
0: So, you know, I um, part of my story is being first generation, a lot of things. And so um, my family's from Trinidad, big up Trini, Trini massive. (laughs) And um, growing up in the Bronx, um, growing up in the Marble Hill area, Marble Hill housing projects, um, really just being raised by incredible women in that community is what inspired me to become an OBGYN. Okay,
1: that's what's up. I've only been to New York once. (laughs) You got to visit. It was like a day and a half. And honestly, I probably had the quickest tour of New York ever. Like I hit almost every borough except Staten Island. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. we were just keeping it moving. So I went to Brooklyn and then we went to Manhattan for pizza. I walked the Brooklyn Bridge. We went to. Oh, nice. World Trade Center area. We went to Times Square. We went to a Mets game. That was all in one day.
0: That's all in one day. Yeah.
1: And then I'm busy.
0: Now, it's funny. If you ask New Yorkers, we don't really do any of that. I haven't been to any big landmarks, um, tourist attractions like the big buildings. And no, I went to World Trade when it was there, but it was like because my mama had a bank account there, like it wasn't <laughs> anything for the tourist attraction um, bit. But yeah, no, it sounds like you had a very busy time.
1: Yep, and I, <laughs> and I ended it in Harlem. That's yes, the
0: well, good place to end it.
1: Yes, yes, definitely got me some good food over there. So you are Ob Gyn Doctor. What made you become an Ob Gyn? Yes.
0: So I really. Uh, Give all the credit to the women in my community who raised me. I always tell this story that when I was about 12 years old, hanging out with some of the older girls and hearing conversations about body, about um, acceptance, about being rejected because they were project girls. And what did that mean in terms of like sexuality? What did that mean in terms of owning your womanness? And it really, you know, I, I was a fan of the Cosby show. I don't know if I could still say that. Um, but I was, I know, I don't know, I don't know, but like kind of like seeing, you you know, Vanessa and um, Denise's friends go to see Dr. Huxtable and kind of talk about some things that may have been kind of off the table. That really was the beginning of like me wanting to pursue something in women's health. Didn't know what that was. Um, and so, made my way into medical school and actually my obgyn rotation was really hard wow. um i was kind of torn in what that journey, what that path would look like. I toyed with maybe I could do PEDS, maybe I could do internal medicine with a, with a woman's health focus, but it really came down to the patients and the type of care delivery that you do as an OBGYN, really taking care of women along the continuum of their reproductive health from puberty all the way up to menopause and beyond. And so being there for that um, continuum was really, really what captured me and love taking care of my ladies. Okay,
1: so what made that rotation very hard?
0: You know, what was interesting, um, I did my uh, medical school training at Harvard. So I was in Boston and as a New Yorker being in Boston, that was tough.
1: (laughs) You couldn't wear your Yankees uh, hat.
0: You know, I couldn't wear the Yankees hat, Um, but, but, you know, just kind of seeing the lifestyle, uh, seeing the, the attendings kind of like them grappling with really like quick decisions. Part of me was really attracted to that, but really not seeing somebody that was like me had the same kind of personality as me. Everybody seemed really kind of cold and angry. Um, And what I discovered actually um, uh, my med school education afforded me the opportunity to take a month off. And so I traveled with my family to Trinidad for Carnival. So, If you've known anything about Trinidad's carnival in February, big celebration, the whole country shuts down. And I remember sitting on like the veranda of my aunt's house sipping, you know, fresh coconut water out of the coconut and really reflecting on what was it about my rotations up until that point that meant the most to me. And it was the patience. It was really like realizing that you can really make an incredible impact on a woman's life, especially on such a personal level when it comes to reproductive health. And I don't have to be that way. I don't have to practice like that. So I don't practice like that. I'm not angry. I'm real happy. Like you come to my office, we're going to sip some tea. We're going to have a really good conversation. Good time.
1: some tea and spill some tea.
0: Right. All of it.
1: (laughs) That's what's up. That's what's up. So I got Dr. Miller on the podcast because I want to have her on to have a discussion on perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause. Unfortunately, I know some of my friends are starting to creep up in age. I as well. And so they can see the light on some of these symptoms coming around the corner. So we're going to kind of have a discussion breaking down each one of these categories, age, typical symptoms. So Dr. Miller, let's start off with perimenopause. What kind of age, what age does it start around yeah. or what symptoms do women start to develop?
0: So perimenopause really is the phases before menopause and slightly after menopause. And so menopause, people don't realize it's like a single day, right? It's a Clinical definition, it is defined as the day that you have had no menstrual periods for a year, okay, then you are considered to be menopausal. So the time before that is considered perimenopause, as well as the time after that, or some will use the term postmenopause. And so menopause average age is about 51, right? About 51. But when you talk about that perimenopausal transition, that transition on average is about four years, but can be as long as eight to 10 years. So you have some women who start going through those perimenopausal changes, as we'll talk about some of those symptoms as early as age 40, or even Hmm. longer than that, depending on when they actually go through menopause. I've seen patients who are in their mid thirties, having some of these perimenopausal symptoms. And then when you get a little bit more of a family history, you find that the women in their family tend to have menopause on the earlier end of things. And so we start seeing hormonal changes as early as 32, when we think about kind of reproductive potential, but then when you start having those really heavy symptoms um, that we'll talk about, you can see it pretty early, but on average is about four um, years if you take the median.
1: Okay. Okay. So what's kind of happening with the, with a woman's hormones around that time?
0: Yeah. So, um, women are born (laughs) with all Mm -hmm. of the eggs that they will have. Um, it's developed inside your mama. Okay. (laughs) And so when you're born, you actually get like what we call atresia. There's like a big kind of egg death that happens right after delivery. Things start kind of kicking up right around puberty. And then as you start having regular menstrual cycles, all of those eggs, thousands of those those eggs, they kind of get called up for the potential for pregnancy, and then they go away. And this process will go on until you have fewer and fewer and fewer eggs that can get called up. Our eggs actually are responsible for our estrogen production. Estrogen is amazing. We're going to talk about (laughs) that. Um, But as those eggs kind of get older, as you have fewer eggs that will get called up for reproduction, you actually start to experience a decline in your overall estrogen production. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes um, very, very apparent because estrogen is like all, there are receptors for estrogen all over the body in terms of like the brain, the liver, all over the place. And so when you actually start having declines in estrogen, that's when you start seeing the, the common symptoms that women will associate with the perimenopausal transition, namely mm-hmm. night sweats, Hot flashes, you might get a little bit of fatigue, you might get some irritability, you might start experiencing some hair loss and hair changes, skin changes, weight gain, poor sleep,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. all the things, right? All the yes. things. All so, horrible
1: symptoms that just keep piling horrible up. Horrible symptoms. <laughs>
0: horrible. And then, and then coupled that, where, where women are in their mid 40s, right? So now you have a lot of different phenomena happening. You're in your mid 40s children for those who have had children, you may have young children, you may have teenagers, and they both have issues, right? (laughs) You may be in that what we call that sandwich generation where you are taking care of your children, but then you're also starting to take care of elderly parents who may have health concerns. And now you're moving into caregiver roles. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of have all of these symptoms that are really disruptive to kind of like daily functioning, poor sleep, low libido, all of these things. And then you add on some of those social circumstances and then it has like a recipe for disaster. If we don't really be um, mindful of the symptoms, treating it and providing support. Yeah,
1: I never really thought about that. All of that stuff kind of culminating at the same time period. Mm-hmm. You might have a teenager in the household, you're going through menopause and then you got to take care of your sick parents. That yeah.
0: And when we look at kind of like how society treats menopause, it really is like for comedic relief, right? Like it's always like the woman opening up the fridge, putting her shirt up, she's in the kit, you know, or she's raging at her family and everybody's kind of like snickering because mom's having a hot flash. And so a lot of the time we don't have a lot of education about what is actually physiologically happening in the body what's responsible for these symptoms, and then how we can actually provide relief for women when they're experiencing this. It's not just about kind of family dynamics and taking care of the family. Um, When you have women who are working in the workplace, there actually um, is a huge, tremendous uh, kind of billion-dollar-plus cost for not being mindful of uh, menopause in the workplace. So lots of incentive here to shine a light on all of it so that women can feel comfortable um, asking for uh, help where they need it.
1: During the perimenopause phase, um, how do women's cycles change? Because I know some women in late 20s, early 30s, they may miss a cycle every now and then just to kind of prevent that potential worry of listening to this podcast. Oh, I missed one cycle. I'm going through perimenopause. Oh, Lord. Dr. <laughs> Miller said this is what happened to me. I'm
0: too young. I'm too young. great. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, the cycle kind of is all over the place when it comes to perimenopause. For some women, they will have regular menstrual cycles all the way through and then literally will stop to the day. I would say that's probably a smaller um, proportion of women who actually have regular cycles up until the time where they're almost a year and then they don't have any further cycles. The vast majority of women may see their cycles start to get closer together. So what's happening there is that your brain, your pituitary gland and your ovaries, they're always in communication. And if the ovaries are aging and they're not releasing as much estrogen, the pituitary is like, hey, we got to get these eggs out and start signaling to the ovaries to release those eggs. So you're getting more signaling and the ovaries like, "Okay, I'm going to try. And it's sputtering, literally sputtering, trying to get those eggs but the quality of those eggs are not very great. And so what you notice is that they're ovulating much faster than usual. And that there, that makes the cycle shorter. So as opposed to like maybe a 28 day cycle where you're ovulating on day 14, now you're getting all of this signal to the ovary to ovulate, ovulate. Now you're ovulating closer to day seven Mm. and now your cycles are maybe moving closer together to 21 days. Sometimes you stop ovulating altogether, and the bleeding that you're actually experiencing is what we call anovulatory bleeding. It's essentially like the the lining of the uterus kind of outgrows the blood supply, and you're just getting kind of all kinds of messy bleeding that really doesn't have a nice rhythm or cycle to it. And then for some women, as they get later on in their perimenopausal uh, progression, you start seeing spacing out of the cycles. So you'll say, "Hey, I had this cycle." In January, I haven't had one. And then I had a cycle in May. And usually that cycle may be really, really heavy because you haven't had one for several months. And after several months of having that, then most women will say that the cycles get lighter and lighter and lighter as the estrogen levels go down and down and down.
1: That's very tricky. It's, it's not cookie cutter. So not you can cutter. go from having cycles real close together to them being spread out more apart.
0: Right. Right. Yeah,
1: watch out, fellas. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> Stay safe out there. Those eggs just dropping kind of sporadically. So is there anything that women can do early on before having those perimenopausal symptoms? Something kind of some kind of prophylactic treatment? Like how, I want to make sure that. Do I need to start taking hormones now to prevent those Mm -hmm. symptoms from developing later?
0: Yeah, that is such a great question. You know, I think the best setup for the perimenopausal transition is general wellness and well health. And I know that sounds kind of like catchy. That's all kind of like the thing, but it really is true. So when you start going through that menopausal transition, where your sleep is compromised, where your mood, you may have a little mood lability, You may have issues with libido. You may have all of these other concerns. When you have a good wellness practice, whether that is, you know, physical activity, which I highly encourage that will help with some of the weight gain that some women will experience with menopause. Um, when you have a good meditation practice or other kind of wellness habit journaling, I, I tell my ladies, get coached up. You know, if you need a therapist, get a therapist. If you need somebody to be your cheerleader, be your cheerleader, make sure that you're coming in community with like your friends, your family in a way that is supportive. Because when you, if you can build that early on. When you get to that stage, then you already have the support systems in place to help you through that stage. It's very hard and challenging to try to play catch up when you already feel so far behind. So that's one of the first things that I always check in with my patients as they're getting close to that perimenopausal age to start thinking about. Another thing that I always, especially with with, um, my patients in the mid thirties or their late thirties, I always ask about desires for childbearing. Now, if my patient's like, nope, have no interest. Great. Let's talk about contraception and keep those pregnancies away. Right. Mm -hmm. But I always have a conversation about childbearing because as we age, the likelihood for infertility goes up and that's just a function of aging. And so if I have someone who's in her mid thirties um to her late 30s. And I know that perimenopause may be around the corner just from statistics, just because of age. Then I do have a conversation with her um, specifically about what are her plans for childbearing, if any. And if so, what are her thoughts about um, seeing an infertility specialist to potentially talk about egg freezing and those things so that she has options so that if she starts to experience some symptoms of perimenopause, she has options if she does want to grow family.
1: So one thing that I wanted to kind of bring up as well as people who are at increased risk of having symptoms during perimenopausal and menopausal phase, because I read one um, article that was saying black women are at increased risk of having symptoms and other kind of categories, too, as well. It didn't say these two tied in, but it also mentioned low income and low education. Now, how much that played into research and how much of that is true, you would know more than me. But it made me kind of raise my eyebrows when it mentioned that kind of stuff in the article.
0: You know, there was this wonderful article um, and I love all of the social media um, influencers that are really taking the conversation of menopause directly to especially black women. Um, menopause is the same in everybody, but it's not experienced the same as everybody because the opportunity to have conversations with healthcare providers about your symptoms, the willingness for healthcare providers to have those conversations and then Frankly, just some of the, um, the late options that are out there are really not addressing the concerns of women of color. Um, so you have now these uh, incredible influencers like um, Menopause Why Black, you know, uh, Black women's menopause. You have these uh, influencers who are really kind of like centering the voices of Black men and women in their experiences and providing with the, them with community. The data actually show that when, b- women who identify as Black African-American they tend to have um, more severity of symptoms in menopause and they're less likely to provide treatment for the menopausal symptoms. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of the time it could be very cultural. We do know that for our Asian American women, they tend to um, not necessarily Necessarily have fewer symptoms, but their experience of the severity of symptoms are less. And and some of it has to do with the, um, how aging is regarded in those cultures. Aging is not seen as a negative thing um, in those cultures. And so for patients specifically who have those ethnicities, asking about symptoms and making sure that you're addressing them, even if you have a patient that says, nope, everything's fine. um, You have to actually ask, be like, is it fine now? Like, are you good? And then really kind of like, make sure that you're addressing it. But one of the ways that I think as healthcare providers, um, I don't know if I told you in my role, I'm a uh, national certified menopause practitioner That's mm-hmm. the North American menopause society. And one of the things that I encourage in my practice and in my colleagues is to really have a standard uniform set of questions of how you approach your patients who are coming in with like well, women care, right? If I have a person who's coming in in her forties, I'm thinking maybe she's perimenopausal. I'm just going to ask the question. Even if she's like, no, I'm fine. No, let me ask the question. How's your libido? Are you having hot flashes? How's your sleep? How's your support? Do you have brain fog? Like, I mean, I go through my list and you'll be surprised that once you actually open up that conversation, they'll be like, oh my gosh, these hot flashes are killing me. Well, ma'am, yes, let's talk about it. Let's like kind of figure out what we can do about it. And so that's one of the ways that I feel as providers that we could really level that playing field for our patients who really have terrible time with their symptoms, but they're just not being treated for them appropriately.
1: Right. Totally agree. Sometimes I think I do personally a bad job on on doing those type of questions myself. So I try to be more proactive in answering certain those questions. You
0: have a checklist, right? You got to check the Mm -hmm. blood pressure, high blood pressure. Let me talk about your diabetes. Let me talk about this. I mean, there's so many things on the Mm -hmm. list. And so it really thankfully could fall on the gynecologist to do it. But again, even in our own training, um, gynecologists don't have optimal training in residency to be able to address that. I think I was reading a story that only 20% of residency programs even have any sort of formal menopause curriculum as part of their residency. So it's definitely something that's kind of like been put on the back burner because there are all of these other competing, um, competing interests But definitely a small change of practice, a little checklist will make a big difference.
1: Okay. So we've discussed demographics, risk factors, symptoms. Let's get into more about the treatment. So treatment options for perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms. I know we can go Mm -hmm. down multiple routes. So we'll start off with hormone therapy. What kind of information Mm -hmm. can you give my listeners on that?
0: Yeah. So when it comes to hormone therapy, it really depends on what the goals of the patient would be. So I'm a very goals oriented or oriented uh, physician when it comes to my patients, because some patients are really not interested in hormonal therapy. And it may be when they were in their twenties, they had, you know, lots of trouble uh, with hormones, taking it as a form of contraception. And so really kind of getting down to what the patient's goals are really important. If I have a patient who's open to um, hormone and what the hormones are really doing is really in the perimenopausal phase while she's still having cycle, it's providing relief of some of the vasomotor symptoms that we talked about. So hot flushes and night sweats, but it's also going to give her some predictability around her cycle. So for women who are still having menstrual cycles, really easy, really cheap, highly available, highly, you know, um, available at any pharmacy is a simple oral contraceptive pill. Um, or other form of what we call the combined hormonal contraception. So that can be a contraceptive ring, that could be contraceptive patches. And what we're doing here is we're literally like hijacking the ovaries. We're like, okay, you can relax. (laughs) You're sputtering, you're like having a lot of issues right now. We are going to give you this medication and it's going to give you predictable bleeding pattern if that's your choice, if you want to have a predictable bleeding pattern or we're just going to skip this bleeding altogether. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're going to give you a pill and we're going to ask you to use it continuously. Meaning those little sugar pills, you don't have to take those. There really is no need when you're on hormonal contraception to have uh, menstrual withdrawal bleed. And so we can use those continuously. And the benefit for that is peace of mind. You don't have to always worry about like, when am I going to bleed? When am I not going to bleed? If you're having hot flushes or night sweats, those tend to really take care of that because the reason why you're having those in the first place is your estrogen levels are falling. And so giving you back a little bit of that hormone really could help. If I have patients who say they've um, hit menopause, they're in that that final menstrual cycle. So bleeding is not really an issue. A traditional birth control pill could be helpful, but I tend to transition them to more of like a hormone, like a menopausal hormone therapy pill, which Mm -hmm. can be combined. But that's when we get into all kinds of things. You can have a contraceptive, not a contraceptive ring, like a kind of a hormonal ring. You can Mm -hmm. have patches, which I absolutely love. They're um, considered bioidentical, but they're FDA approved.
1: Yeah, that's what I prescribe, a lot of patches.
0: Yeah, yeah. Patches on the skin, it's very easy, very user-friendly because you can put the patch on, change it every week or every twice a week, depending on which patch you're on. And it's transdermal. So when I think of kind of the risk of, um, blood clots and things like that associated with some of the other, um, types of oral formulations, we don't have that with the patches. And so it tends to be really well received by chases because it's easy. Um, there's also, uh, progesterone. I love, uh, progesterone, which is also considered a bioidentical hormone that is available through the FDA. You can get it at your pharmacy, with a prescription. And I love it because it actually helps with sleep. And so some of the synthetic progesterones don't do a good job with like sleep control, but permetrium or micronized progesterone great for sleep. And so if I have um, a patient who's having hot flushes, night sweats, and I want to give her progesterone anyway. If you are a person that still has a uterus in place, you should also have progesterone to protect that lining. I give her that Prometrium and she's using it. I'd say use it 10 times a month, but mm-hmm. a lot of my patients will use it every night because it really does help facilitate sleep. So lots of different options there um, for the hormone therapy estrogen can be delivered, like I said, with pill, patch, ring, gel, so many different ways um, to deliver it that are FDA approved. And so lots of different options for patients. Now we have some patients that can't be on hormone for a host of different reasons. A a big um, one would be say history of breast cancer that's estrogen sensitive. And so if that patient is experiencing lots of symptoms, there are lots of different ways that we can treat it. And we tend to kind of target the different symptoms. So for my patients who are having hot flushes, but they can't be on estrogen, um, for hormone therapy, like I said, for breast cancer, I have to go back to why are they having these changes that's causing all these hot flushes to begin with and estrogen. Remember I said lots of receptors in the brain, Estrogen actually acts like kind of a thermoregulatory zone in the brain. And that's mediated primarily by a neurotransmitter called serotonin. What's Mm -hmm. great about that is that they got serotonin medications. So (laughs) what I do is I say, okay, this is probably a function of serotonin while you're having these symptoms. I'm going to give you a medication. My psychiatry colleagues, they're fabulous. They have serotonin medications called SSRIs and SNRIs. And I'm going to give you a little dose of that. And let's see if we can just bump up that serotonin level, if we can mitigate some of those symptoms that you're having. Okay.
1: Great information. So with all those hormone therapy, there's a risk associated with increased risk of blood clots, potential increased risk of different cancers, right? What are your thoughts on hormone therapy and those risks?
0: Yeah, So um, this all harkens back to kind of the Women's Health Initiative studies that were done back, uh, the first results were released in 2002. And what they showed using a very specific formulation that there was this potential uh, increased risk of breast cancer, as well as an increased risk specifically of cardiovascular disease and events, so strokes and heart attacks. What was different about that study is that the median age of women in that study, they were in their 60s. And so I would never start somebody on hormone therapy in their sixties. The recommendation is to start at least within the first 10 years of onset of menopause symptoms, but the vast majority of my patients start right when they're starting to experience some symptoms. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that they, they studied one formulation. And subsequently, when you look at the different types of hormone therapies that we use, especially using something like a patch or micronized progesterone, you don't see those same effects. And so I feel very, very comfortable prescribing, um, hormone therapy, especially in the right patient. There are some patients that are not candidates for that. So if I have a patient, for example, who has had a heart attack, you know, the cardiologists do not look very kindly to me, um, if I'm prescribing hormones, but it is something that like for the right patient, it is completely safe. And the recommendation from the North American menopause society is really to use the smallest dose to give the biggest fact for the shortest duration. So if I start someone on hormone, every year I check in with them and say, okay, how are we, we're farther from those symptoms. Let's see if we can wean you down. There will be an adjustment period and then we go from there.
1: How many of your patients you, do you feel like kind of steer away from hormone therapy and are looking for other treatment options besides taking medication?
0: I will tell you, I have a good proportion of patients <laughs> that really, once you educate them about hormone therapy the rationale behind it, the safety profile, like we just talked about, they're really willing to try it, but you're right. I do have some patients that specifically want alternatives to hormone therapies. Um, we try other medications, specifically some of the other medications that I talked about, like SSRIs, SNRIs, We try lots of different classes of medications that um, tend to just work well uh, for especially the hot flushes and the vasomotor symptoms. Um, Those tend to be like the gabapentins or the clonidines that I'm pretty sure you see a lot in your practice. Um, But then I kind of really like open them up to the idea of having a lot of like multimodal support around their menopausal journey recognizing the link between for some women, their triggers, um, yeah. insulin resistance with aging and the menopause journey, and really exploring some dietary changes. Now, will I say dietary changes will completely knock out, um, hot flushes and, um, vasomotor symptoms? No, but yeah. will it help kind of like the patient navigate that next phase without the excessive weight gain without some of the fogginess? Yes, absolutely. And so I highly encourage, um, patients and I say, listen, go to your insurance book, or I guess they're not a book anymore. When I was growing up, we had that big old insurance book that you would look at the providers in the book. We don't have that anymore, but go to your insurance company's website and find dietitians that are covered by your insurance company and meet with them to talk about dietary changes, get to know what's happening physically to your body as it relates, especially to insulin resistance, because as a woman's health doctor in menopause, I'm worried about what's going to kill women which is cardiovascular disease um and diabetes being one of the big uh, markers for that in addition to high blood pressure and things like that so i encourage my patients to set up an appointment with a dietitian get to know some dietary changes that can also help um, them on the on the long term right
1: is there some foods that you tell your patients to stay away from or add to their diet to help them with their symptoms
0: yeah, you know, I the, the refined sugars are really tough. You know, I'm not somebody to say, "Hey, don't eat the cookie. Eat the cookie." Okay, like if you want to eat the cookie, eat the cookie. Don't eat the bag of cookie. Okay, or try not to eat the cookie late at night. Like, understand like where your body. Like, I actually hired a health coach. She's amazing because I wanted to better understand the impact of health and stress, especially being a busy doctor, and I'm a mom, and I'm a wife, and all kinds of drama. And one of the exercises that she had me do was to buy one of those glucometer kits. Mm-hmm. Amazon. Was I supposed to do that, Dr. Randy? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe they'll sponsor us one day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and literally, um, I like checked my blood sugars and I related it to when I was eating, how I was eating. And I found that, like, what I used to be able to do when I was 22, I can't do at 42. Mm-hmm. So you literally, like, I literally saw in real time if I have very carbohydrate rich. I had some ice cream, right? If I have that at like eight, nine o'clock at night and I'm checking my blood sugars or I'm checking my blood sugar in the morning, my sugars were elevated. And so it really helped me say, ah, okay, maybe I can make small changes to just sub out some of the more refined carbohydrates that I was eating. And not to say to take it all away, but to be more mindful of it. Because if my goal is to try to walk into midlife, recognizing my body's changing and it's gonna err on the side of that insulin resistance, I just need to make some dietary changes.
1: You 42? Shout out to Black Girl Magic hey. over there. I see you. <laughs> popping, hair on point. Y'all going to see this <laughs> visual representation. Y'all better follow me on IG so you can see all this <laughs> Black Girl Magic. <laughs> all right.
0: Another thing, you know, when we look at the data in terms of what can help with kind of general symptoms, specifically vasomotor uh, symptoms, It's interesting that uh, cognitive behavioral therapy um, can actually help. And so I do have some patients that want a little bit more of a holistic approach. They maybe have adopted a meditation practice that will get into cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which is essentially like it doesn't take away the hot flushes, but it teaches you mechanisms by which you can feel like, you know, I'm experiencing these hot flushes, but I am not going to react to the severity of them. So it doesn't change the number of hot flushes, night sweats that you have, but it changes kind of like your response to them. And it's been shown to be quite effective. Um, I do have some patients who will do acupuncture and the studies that look specifically at acupuncture um, really focus on studies where they do acupuncture and then kind of like fake acupuncture. And so the thought is that there weren't a lot of, uh, the results were inconclusive, let's just say that. But it really wasn't great in terms of like how it was studied because you might actually get a little bit of movement with um, some of the uh, the sham or the fake acupuncture. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the principles that we worked on in a course, a digital course that I created um, with my uh, partner who is a tapping specialist. And tapping is um, it's a technique taking the same idea of acupuncture Tapping on different what we call meridians, some acupressure points, to really kind of get the key um, movement uh, that can help with just general symptoms of stress and things like that. So I do encourage patients if they're really interested um, to explore that, like to explore things like acupuncture tapping, because a lot of the times what I'm finding is it's not so much just like the isolated hot flashes it's, it's the stress that goes along with that. Because if you're not sleeping well, if you're hot all the time. I have, you know, women who are big um, executives and they're presenting and they're breaking out in sweats in the middle of a presentation. That can be very anxiety provoking. So giving them some strategies to help them in the moment is really, really critical.
1: So let's get into tapping a little bit more. What made you get into it and how effective is it?
0: So let me tell you a story about tapping. So I met Jill, I'll, I'll tell you. So Dr. Jill Weiner is my partner for the digital course that we created. It's called Harnessing Your Power A, a Mindful Menopause Toolkit. And, uh, we actually met outside of talking about anything having to do with tapping. She, um, actually is the co-founder of a conscious anti-racism, uh, training that, uh, she and her our di- Dr. Myesha Claiborne give for health systems as it relates to building anti-racist cultures in your health system. And so I was invited in her podcast to talk about some of the things that we talked about um, in terms of disparities in, in treatment for um, menopausal health. And so we got talking, talking, talking and realized that we have an interest in kind of bringing um, new modalities to patients. And so she is a tapping um, practitioner. Uh, Her journey started as an internal medicine doctor and she became burnt out and discovered meditation and then meditation through her practice. She then discovered tapping and became a tapping practitioner. And what it is, it's, it's, it's not just like tapping on the acupressure points. And so she's more of the practitioner than me in terms of tapping on different areas. This is my area. I can't do it now because my hair is up, but like, this is the area that I really kind of like find release in. Um, But the idea that you're also doing affirmations. So in the course, for example, say you have, um, a lot of my patients are really stressed out about weight gain, especially, and kind of like the negative talk that comes along with aging and weight gain. And through their tapping sequences, they actually call out those negative emotions. So they'll say things like, I can't believe I gained all of this weight. I'm so mad at myself, right? Maybe we'll start here. I'm so mad at myself. I can't believe I let myself go. And I (laughs) love
1: myself. And for the listeners, she's tapping different areas of her body as she's saying these things. Right.
0: And part of it is like, you always end it with, and I love myself, right? This kind of positive affirmation, you're giving space to the, to those feelings that you have. Sometimes you try to swallow those feelings and be like, these are negative feelings, you know, but listening to a lot of things about like toxic positivity, you know, sometimes you got to sit in the feeling, uh-huh. but you end it with, and I love myself all while tapping on these different acupressure points. And what was really um, eye-opening for me, even in my own experience tapping with her, there was like one little place, right? And I'm like a scientist. I was like, "Mm, you want me to tap on my head, really? (laughs) And so I like did this big PubMed search and I'm trying to find literature and actually tapping is used um, for PTSD quite widely. Um, especially in kind of the veteran population. So I found lots of studies that showed the effectiveness of tapping um, in those populations, especially for PTSD to help process some of the stress related to that experience for them. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't really a lot in women's health. We saw some around like stress and maybe premenstrual um, syndrome and things like that, but there weren't a lot of studies So Dr. Jill actually came to my department and presented and did a tapping sequence with the entire group. And when I tell you people were crying, people were like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And sometimes that is what kind of like gets released during that tapping sequence. And so Um, And so it was pretty powerful. I was like sold. I've even told her like, she needs to come up with a kid's version. I've tried tapping with my son. Like, come on, baby. And he's like, I don't like my little brother and I love myself, you know? (laughs) <laughs> so it's just—it's just another tool for women to use while they're going through this menopausal transition, which can be very stressful. Can feel very foreign, really alien, where they're in kind of that, that thick of things that they can use their own power, that they can use their own bodies to kind of bring them down and soothe themselves.
1: Okay, it seems like you were a little skeptical at first before you tried it. You—you you were looking in the Bible, like was Jesus
0: tapping on? <laughs>
1: Is that how you raise Lazarus from the dead? Let me, let me look in the book of Luke and see if Jesus over there tapping on
0: Yeah, you know, because it was something new. It's not something that I received any training on. Same thing with like the nutrition piece. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to work with a health coach myself to kind of go through that process. Because we really don't learn about menopause Um in that light, like what can you do to kind of improve overall health, prepare for that transition and then the impact that it has later on in health. And so it was really important for me, if I was going to be a well-rounded menopause practitioner to really learn some of these other modalities so that I can really give my patients all of the options, because sometimes I have some folks, they don't have hot flashes. They don't have night sweats. They don't have any other thing that I would traditionally treat with hormones. So what other options do I have for them? And being able to say, you know, I've tried this, I think it could be really helpful or, Hey, you know, big thing is like libido, you know, testosterone is not the cure all, especially if I'm getting deep into like your relationship dynamics. And I'm like, I think that there may be something there. I need to be comfortable prescribing some other things that I think could help, not just hormones.
1: If someone wanted to try tapping, how do they get into
0: it? Yeah. So, um, there are tapping practitioners, like certified tapping practitioners, Dr. Jill is like the one that I know. Um, And they offer actual courses. So there are digital courses that are available for tapping through our menopause tapping course, um, the harnessing your power, you get the both the best of both worlds, you get me kind of going through um, kind of the five main pain points that I see in my menopause practice. And then Dr. Jill comes. She teaches you kind of like the principles of tapping and then takes you through a tapping sequence that you can then repeat or do with her. And it's all digitally. Um, tapping practitioners also have one to one. So you kind of come to them almost like your therapy session, in the sense that like you may have like a specific like um, pain point or angst or something like that. And so then. You can actually be on the computer and tap or in person and tap um, with that uh, with that practitioner. So there's lots of different ways. The thing that I like about it is that other than kind of like learning the technique, there's very low downside and cost. It's relatively safe. You know, it may kind of conjure up some feelings. And so the uh, the tapping practitioners always kind of say, hey, you might feel some things. Um,
1: but You can't tap I- yourself to death.
0: No, no, <laughs> not at all. But it might bring up some emotions. It might make okay. you fearful. It might make you kind of like sit with some of that discomfort a little bit of the things that you're actually saying.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And then kind of ending with the affirmation of I love myself and then also tapping on some of these um, acupressure points.
1: Do you and Dr. Jill do any other courses?
0: So this is our first course, but we have our webinar um, that we're planning for uh, June. It's going to be a a mindful menopause masterclass. And we're really going to focus about like libido and you kind of like in this menopausal transition. I find that a lot of patients, you know, I'm talking about sexual health is very taboo um, for some patients. And there's so many studies that show that um, physicians, even OBGYNs, when we're like focusing on reproductive health really are not asking, especially this, um, the, this age category, because we're not really worried about pregnancy. We're not worried about all of these things. So we're not really asking about sexual health in a very straightforward way um, that our patients need that education and know what their options are. Okay.
1: So if you had to leave lasting words of women, wisdom for women who are going through perimenopause and menopause, what kind of advice would you give them?
0: The first advice uh, or the first piece of advice that I would just say is that embrace this journey with curiosity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we live in a society that really favors um, youth and really favors thinness and really favors um, all of the things that come with young age. And as women see their bodies physically changing, they see their perspectives changing, they're physically kind of having symptoms that they don't feel in control of, it can feel very overwhelming. Um, And so I just encourage women to say, hey, you are in the middle of your life. You have the next 40, 50 years, hopefully to go. Enter this stage with curiosity and really embrace all of the changes and really the wisdom that you gain over this 40 plus years of your life. And so when you kind of approach it that way, um, as opposed to this, I'm aging, I'm getting older, I can't believe I'm getting older. It really kind of helps shift that mindset a little bit.
1: And you're not alone.
0: (laughs) And you're not alone.
1: Right. Are there any kind of support groups?
0: Oh my gosh. Can I tell you? So there are so many, um, There are so many groups. That's one of the big things, actually. There was a study that actually looked at women who are in community with other women, especially around some of the the, the cognitive um, changes that can happen their experience of those changes, actually, their their impressions of it actually improve. Because now you're in community with other people and be like, oh, I'm not crazy. It's not just me. Um, mm-hmm. And you have support. What works for you? What has, you know, what hasn't worked for you? Who should I talk to? Really coming in community is so important. Um, so I encourage people to really tap into their network. So lots of women may have you know, you, you're busy, right. You're taking care of the parents. You're busy with work. You're taking the kids really carving at that time with your girlfriends, your community to just come together again. I think that now that things are opening up after COVID, we, we hopefully we'll see a little bit more coming together and really focus on that. There's actually this fabulous, um, group called, uh, Revel. Um, and, and they, host revelry parties, if you will, kind of across the nation. Like you can say, I want to host a party um, and you can host a party and it's all for women in midlife and beyond. And so you have like these different meetups. Um, Like I said, lots of, um, lots of focus now on midlife health. Uh, If you look back in 2019, 2020, you started seeing a lot of kind of these um, big funds really moving midlife health to the telehealth um, social media and um, the internet spaces where they can reach women a little bit more widely because there really isn't a lot of education from doctors about midlife health. And so now you're having these concentrated pockets of trained physicians who are like reaching um, these, these patients on a more nationwide scale. So lots of excitement there. I encourage people to follow um, some of these, um, these uh, influencers just for information and then being comfortable by visiting the North American Menopause Society's website so that you can find a certified menopause practitioner who, I mean, we have to get training, we take an exam for certification, and then that it's not over. We actually have to get certification every three years by taking courses, attending conferences to make sure that we're staying up to date. Um, with all of the kind of the cutting edge things as it relates to uh, perimenopausal health, midlife and beyond. And so I encourage your listeners to visit that website as well.
1: And how do they visit your website? How do they get more information about Dr. Miller?
0: Yeah, so, you know, I am a practicing academic physician. So that is kind of like my nine to five, if you will. But I definitely have a social media presence on Instagram, um, as well as on Facebook. So on Facebook, I'm Dr. Taniqua Miller. On Instagram, I'm Taniqua Miller, MD. Um, And uh, I do have a very... Form website called uh, TanicoMD.com, uh, which but a lot of my engagement is on um, the social media platforms.
1: You're not on TikTok yet.
0: Okay, so my assistant is like, "We need to get you on TikTok," and I said, "No, ma'am, ma'am, <laughs> ma'am." I, I did my first reel. Okay. And it took me like 30 minutes.
1: Ah, um, right. I, think, yeah. <laughs> I was like,
0: I don't have time like that in my life.
1: No, somebody's somebody's trying to get me on TikTok. I said, I need a limited amount of things that can distract me and I don't need something else.
0: I don't need anything else. Find me here. Because if you're on TikTok, chances are you're on Instagram too.
1: Right. And I'm not about to be dancing on TikTok. <laughs> I, I know you can
0: dance. I'll see you what your little Jordans on in clinic. I know you can dance.
1: Okay. I can hit a little cap or shimmy every now and then. <laughs> I throw bows I don't shoot me that's another story but as we wrap up I always end my podcast with Randy's random questions are you ready Dr. Miller? I'm ready alright so first question what's the last movie that made you cry that made Encanto. you the, hmm? Encanto okay.
0: I watch cartoons I have three kids so <laughs> Encanto
1: why did that make you cry
0: um the 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 uh, Mirabelle being kind of like the family outcast, but she was the one that brought everybody together. I feel like mm-hmm. that story kind of resonated with me.
1: Okay. Okay. I've never seen that movie. How many times have you had to watch it by choice? Oh my gosh. Too many. Too many. Too
0: many. <laughs> What's your favorite
1: <laughs> song on there?
0: Um, Actually, my favorite song uh, is not Bruno, which is the one talks about it's um the song when her cousin gets his gift and she sings about wanting a gift yearning for a gift she's like i've been faithful i'm waiting i'm ready you know i want to i'm waiting for my miracle so that's my favorite song
1: does your husband side eye you when you start crying watching that movie
0: oh he cries too oh
1: (laughs) (laughs) so y'all made for each other y'all (laughs) both
0: side eye him like you (laughs) can't
1: like no this pollen been getting me (laughs) oh oh, man what's one of the most random things that you keep in your purse Mm,
0: random things that I keep in my purse I have random like 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 ketchup packets (laughs) like you know like you go to like the Chick-fil-A and I'll put it in Uh my bag and it just stays there and I see it And I clean out the bag and I keep the, the, the ketchup pack in there. I don't know what I'm gonna do with the ketchup packet. But sometimes my kids are like, Mama, do you have ketchup if we get mm-hmm. chicken away? And then boom, I got I got it.
1: Yeah, you're like, I got this ketchup from
0: 2002. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of my ketchup packets, because this is like this is like a real thing. One of my ketchup packets actually opens up in my pocket. So that was nasty, but you know.
1: It sounds like bad business right there. <laughs> So you mentioned your kids earlier, yes. which, which one is your shadow, which one stays underneath you? Who's um, the funny one?
0: Okay. The funny one, I got to start there. That's the baby. So my son's name is LaRue. Okay. He's all of a Rue and a Ruru. Like we used to call him Ruru, and that's what he would introduce himself as. He's hilarious. Um, what makes
1: him hilarious?
0: He just is like an old soul. Like, so are you familiar with Harry Potter?
1: yeah i'm familiar
0: okay so we're all hufflepuffs in my house okay he's slytherin
1: mm.
0: so how does a five-year-old take the harry potter test you read him the questions and then when questions would come up like you would ask your friends to do things for your benefit and he would say yes and i said do you understand the question he's like mm-hmm, i do he's <laughs> like i want them to do what i want them to do so he's kind of like the comedian My buddy, oh like uh, you know a friend of mine was like you need to have a lawyer or retainer and I said no we're gonna my godmother who is a lawyer she was like no we're gonna get him into showbiz um my shadow is my daughter who's kind of like my mini me um she's 10 she's my girl and then I have um uh, we don't say middle child we say the oldest boy mm-hmm. who's like my kind of techie kid he likes kind of he's like the kid that it's like hey mama's phone's not working fix it and he's like okay,
1: okay. Yeah, he's That's cool. That's cool. I always like for people to give a shout out to their kids on the podcast. So if they come to listen to this years from now, that they can they can argue between each other and be like, see, mama always said that you was the bad one of the family. She said that when you were little. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. My babies, I love them so much.
1: All right. So we're going to let you off the hot seat. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Y'all make sure to go follow her on all of her social media platforms. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok is pending. Make sure y'all <laughs> go to her website as well. Taniqua Miller, MD. Taniqua, MD. Taniqua, MD. Go visit her on her website. Check out her courses dropping in June, correct?
0: We're going to do our webinar, but the actual digital course is out now.
1: Okay. Okay. So y'all go look it up. So thank you for being on with me.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, that's it for this episode with Dr. Miller. Are you over there tapping on yourselves, saying that you love yourself? Tap away. Tap away. Y'all make sure to go follow her on her social media platforms and check out her website. That info is located in the show description. Follow me on IG at underscore Dr. Randy and check out my website, DrRandyMD.com. I couldn't afford DrRandy.com. I wanted $5,000 for it. And I'm broke for I broke. Dr. Randy ain't got it. So we're going with DrRandyMD.com. If you enjoyed this episode and my dry humor, please share with others. Leave a comment and give me a five-star rating. I will see you all next week. And we'll be discussing prostate cancer screening and erectile dysfunction. Yep, when it don't go up and it don't get stuck. So we're going to get into it. Erectile dysfunction. So tune in next week to On Call with Dr. Randy. And this beat got a little bass to it. Going hard on this piano. Yeah, y'all can go out and vibe to the beat a little bit. But I'll see y'all next week. And as always. Stay healthy physically and mentally.